You're listening to a podcast from www.aussiewriters.com.au where we celebrate talented Australian writers and their books. Well, I'm here at the Jugiong Writers' Festival and I have the great honour to talk to a Canberra author and the author of a book called The Happiness Jar. You have to love that title. We all need a bit of a happiness uh, and to have a jar of it must be really, really special. Samantha Tidy has written this uh, book which has just recently won an award through the ACT Writers' Centre. So welcome, Samantha. Thank you. And it's lovely to have you here. Could you please tell us a little bit about this latest book called The Happiness Jar? Well, The Happiness Jar is uh, its actually an object in the story and it's a novel about a girl called Rachel who actually lives with a terminal illness and when she dies, she leaves behind a will asking two of her family members to take half of her ashes to two different destinations. She asks her mother, uh, Beth, to travel to India and she asks her brother uh, to travel to another destination and that being a remote Indigenous community. So both of these two people are asked to take half of her ashes and at first Beth is a bit reticent to do that because she's quite a conservative housewife and um, going to India wasn't high on her bucket list to begin with. Uh, but both of these characters do travel and it has remarkable consequences for both of them. At the same time, Rachel's father, Brian, has been missing for 20 years. He actually walked out on the family in the middle of the night when Rachel was seven years old. And he's been missing and he was a Vietnam veteran who suffered from PTSD, which led to him, I guess, leaving the family. So there's that open-ended, not sure where Brian is now today. And so when Rachel dies, it's a catalyst for a whole lot of change for her remaining family members. Wow, that, that is really quite an intense, thick plot there. That It's a complex plot, isn't it? Um, can I ask you where you got the inspiration for this story? Uh, is it something to do with I see cystic fibrosis um, was part of it or...? I, I believe that uh, as a writer, you take from your own life. You never write... Uh, well, you can make something up from the top of your head. It's not a vacuum. It's no. not a vacuum. You always draw on inspiration in your own life. And there are so many elements that are dancing around in the novel. And it did take me a very long time to get this novel perfect because I had to balance them all so effectively with one another, uh, which I believe it does. And people, when they read it, can't believe how it all fits together like this perfect little jigsaw puzzle. Um, but I guess all of the elements, the fact that uh, Rachel, when she dies, has you know, she dies from cystic fibrosis. I had a, a friend when I was in primary school with CF, and it's always struck me as a very... It's, it's a horrible disease, and to be told when you're young that you won't have the full life that your friends and family have uh, must be really quite um, profound, I think, to be told that when you're a young person, that you're not going to live as long as everyone else. I think understanding death is something that comes gradually, perhaps in our teenage years, if we lose a grandparent or a dog or so forth. But to be told younger than that about what death is and to know that it's about your own death, I have always been struck with that as being something that not, not a lot of people have had to bear in their life. 
Um, and so that, that was that element there. Uh, the fact that Brian has PTSD. I've had uh, a couple of my friends' fathers have uh, were, were fought in the Vietnam War, and I've seen the effect of that history within the family and how it affects the way a family works. I also used to be manager of education at the Australian War Memorial, and a lot of the volunteers that I worked with were Vietnam vets. And after the War Memorial, I actually worked at the Department of Veterans Affairs for a while in military compensation. And that was mainly uh, with the vets coming out of Iraq and Afghanistan. And what I learnt in that experience is that PTSD isn't just something that belongs to one war, it belongs to every single war. And I believe that, I don't think there's any man or woman that can come out of a combat situation and not be affected in their mental health after such an experience. I think I have spoken to some veterans from Afghanistan and Iraq that say, oh, no, no, I've got no PTSD at all, it's all fine. And maybe if you weren't, uh, you know, if you didn't see anything in particular that affected you. But I think, you know, particularly now, I've recently watched um, Gallipoli, that's on the telly at the moment, um, and... You know, and the Great War was a horrendous war, it really was, but anyone that went to World War I would come home with PTSD, I think, is what they experienced. And so I, I wanted to draw on that and the fact that um, men's mental health is not something that is talked about. I believe that, uh, particularly in country areas, uh, there's a lot of suicide of, of men, um, you know, farmers and so forth. And just in Canberra, where I live, Three fathers have committed suicide in the last eight weeks. And I worry, I worry about that because um, I, I, I worry that, that men don't feel that they can talk about what's upsetting them uh, because traditionally men just don't talk about it. That's so true. And actually the statistics are alarming. I heard at a TED Talk once, uh, I love TED Talks, ago, <laughs> that, um, that it's the biggest killer of young men from mm. 25 to 35, I think uh, it was, or 20 to 35. And the statistics were alarming, absolutely alarming. And I'm just thinking of a novel, trying to think of, of the name of that novel, by, uh, it was in the Sydney Writers Festival, and it was um, the leader of the Iraqi troops, general very high up Cosgrove yes no no it wasn't Cosgrove no it was another another author who wrote he came back and he was chief oh, of army yes um, yes yes I know the book a friend of mine yes. recommended it to me and I can't remember the title yes. but I know the one you're talking about you haven't read it I haven't oh, read it no. so he he gave an amazingly inspirational talk at the Sydney Writers Festival and um and it was a big thing for him to come out, as you say, mm. somebody so high up in the army to come out and and uh, say that he had mm. he had post traumatic stress disorder, and uh, you know that's as you say it's not it's not an easy thing for men to do. No. It's acceptable for women to share their emotions, but not men. And for so, me, with, with the book, it's also about the women's experience of a man's PTSD. Yes. Because when a man has or a woman has PTSD, we're talking about the situation in the Vietnam War, and the majority, of course, were, were male. You know, we had some female service women. Um, when when a man comes home from war with PTSD, it's the family that has to not talk about the elephant in the corner. It's you know, and 
And in fact, the, the men who were in Changi prisoner of war camp were told not to talk about it. When you go home to your families, forget this happened and don't talk about it. And that in itself, talking is the way to solve the problem when it comes to things like PTSD. And so the book does focus on Beth and what she's experienced and what she's sacrificed in her life. Not only having lost her husband 20 years ago and doesn't, you know, doesn't know where he is, but also the fact that she's had to raise the family on her own. That all sounds quite depressing, but it's actually. It does actually. I was just thinking book. to myself, the happiness jar sounds like it's full of a lot of misery. Which is, so. I guess, uh, yeah, that's the, the, the point of it all. It's, it's not a miserable book at all, it's extremely uplifting. Because it's a book of hope, is it? That's right. And the, yeah. the moral of the story is, and this is what the characters have to learn, and which the gift that Rachel wants to give her family is if you're not happy doing what you're doing, then change it. And her giving both of her, you know, her mother and her brother a task to do after she dies is about giving them their lives. And the it's a very selfless them. thing to do, isn't it? It is, but there's this little element of selfishness in there. Is there? Well, if somebody gave you a task when they died, there's an element of judgment in that. And that, both of them, the brother Matt and the mother Beth, has to do with the fact that Rachel's decided they obviously need something and uh, and that in itself can also be you know speaking from the grave it's it's a and when someone speaks to you from the grave it can be quite unnerving so. something that you wouldn't ignore very easily that's no. for sure and you can't take your secrets with you on the cover it well, says that's right there is a little secret in the happiness jar so rachel kept a happiness jar when she was alive and there's you know the the fact that Rachel dies in chapter one is not, I'm not you know giving anything away, um, and it's also there's not it's not a lot of sadness in that. It's just a matter of fact. This is what's happened. Um, she, you know, a little while after, a couple of months later, when Beth is actually in denial uh, from choosing to go on the journey that that Rachel has asked of her, Beth finds Rachel's happiness jar. She finds this this sort of old coffee jar with a scrawled texture on the front that says happiness jar. And she opens it up and she discovers that Rachel has been writing down all of her happy memories and bottling them in this jar and obviously drawing upon them when she needed to. Perhaps, you know, when you're living with a terminal illness, you might have a down day. And uh, so Beth, in finding this happiness jar, finds a whole lot of secrets, stuff that she didn't know Rachel had done or stuff that Rachel knew. And therein lies the catalyst for Beth. She realises she's not got enough got much to put in her own happiness jar. Look, I'm looking at the, the previous book of yours. It sounds, um, compared to the happiness jar, and I might be wrong, it sounds um, a little more frivolous. Cappuccino Diva. That's right. That's the <laughs> novel. Is it frivolous or it's, not? I would say that was, uh, I would call myself a literary writer, but with an element of, you know, frivolity. Yeah, a bit of <laughs> happiness thrown in. Um, that was the novel I wrote when I was well, I'm 41 now, so it was published, what, 12 years ago? So in my 20s, but I wrote it in my early 20s. Right. That's the novel you write in your early 20s. It's the frivolous <laughs> novel that... Um, and I would say it's, it's a good novel for someone in their early 20s. And it's, yes. it's a coming-of-age book, but it's also uh, a novel about a, li- a year in the life of my hometown, which is Fremantle in Western Australia. And Fremantle is a, a very colourful character-driven community. 
and living in Fremantle is an extremely fulfilling experience. You spend a lot of time drinking coffee at Gino's, talking about what you're going to do one day. And I did that for a very long time uh, in Fremantle. And I left, uh, sadly, I left my hometown. But um, as is life, you, you go somewhere, you think you're going for a holiday to Melbourne and you never go home again, which is what happened to me. I left Fremantle uh, not long after Cappuccino Diva came out, so 12 and years so, ago. And so after Cappuccino Diva, which was your first novel, I see you have two children's picture books here, The Blue Polar Bear and The Flying Dream. Were they when you had your children? Not, well, strangely, uh, no, my children are... I, I'm a very late mother, is one way of explaining it. My son Reuben was my 40th birthday present. Oh, and beautiful. Grace, Grace I had Can't get I was, a better one than you, that. I tell you what, I was pretty <laughs> chuffed. And, uh, and Grace I had when I was 38. So it took me a long time to uh, arrive at that chapter of my life. But I knew I'd get there one day. Um, but the, the children's books were... I was commissioned by the New South Wales government, by the Department of Community Services, to write those books. And there's about... I think 30,000 of each in circulation. And they're actually used... This is why my children will never read them. Um, they're used with children uh, where they have a parent with a mental illness or a drug problem, uh, or actually both of those. It's called dual diagnosis, where you have a drug or alcohol problem combined with mental illness, which probably two things you don't want to get in the same person, but they do go hand in hand. When you've got one, often the other will follow. And so... These books are used with children. So they're where, therapeutic. Yes, yeah, and they're to help a child understand why mummy or daddy is not here. They're very, they, I think every time I read The Blue Polar Bear, I cry when I get to the end. And it's one of those things where I think I just remember writing it and hitting the, hitting the moment, the gold moment in the story. And it's when you're writing, you know, writing can be an extremely painful process or it can be an extremely uplifting process where you you realize you're hitting gold and you go oh I'm there that's it that's the words and they're coming out perfect it's cathartic, isn't it? it is and the, the blue polar bear was definitely one of those experiences for me when I wrote it I knew exactly that these are the words required for a five to seven year old to read when mum or dad has been taken into care and that child is no longer with their parent or is staying with an aunt or a foster situation this book helps that child understand what's going on and they're used by psychologists and counsellors all over Australia and New Zealand so quite amazing how how, how did you get that gig <laughs> because so because cappuccino diva I wouldn't have thought would have driven them to no. you for such a for such a serious piece of work they didn't they didn't read that and go here's our girl <laughs> yes um I actually won a tender process of about 100 100 other authors from all over, um, well, there was about 90-odd authors from uh, New South Wales, because it was Department of New South Wales, and at the time I lived in Melbourne, I was the no only non-New South Wales writer that submitted, and then they gave it to me. So I think I hope that that's testament to the fact that my, um, my story was what they were after. And what... Was that, um, may I ask, did you have personal experiences behind you that would help? I, I, had, story? I had known somebody who had yes. dual diagnosis with two children. And so when I wrote the stories, I was thinking of those two kids who were in the, the, the age group. So 
The blue polar bear is for five to seven-year-olds and the flying dream is eight to 12-year-olds. So this person had uh, a young girl and boy in those age demographics. So when I wrote the stories, I wrote them for those two children. That must have been extremely satisfying for you to know that you are making such a difference. It is, definitely. And and that's one of the things why I'm here at the Jogiyong Writers' Festival is... Uh, off the back of the, the adult novel, The Happiness Jar, I actually run creative, write, creative writing workshops for young people where we make a happiness jar. So I just finished a workshop just an hour ago here with the students, or sorry, the, the young children aged sort of 7 to 14 from Jugiong and Surrounds where we talked about what happiness is and that's all based on sort of an academic study which I you know, water down for them in a way. But I talk about the five precursors for happiness or the five habits of happy people. They, I'll tell you briefly what they are because often anyone listening probably wants to get their pen about now. Uh, the first one is managing your money well. The second one is uh, spending your money on experiences rather than material objects. The third one is being able to catch the emotions of others. The fourth one is remembering the past fondly and the fifth one is living in a great community. So with the, with the young people, I talk to them about what remembering the past fondly is about. And then we start our own happiness jar and they write down their happy memories. And what I do, the reason why I do this workshop with young people, particularly in that age group, is as they're entering into the teenage years, it can be really, really difficult. It's, you know, I don't know... I don't know if there's an adult on the planet that would go back and be a teenager again. Never. And <laughs> Never. If, as a teenager, if someone had said to me, look, here's a jar, here's a pencil and some paper, every time you experience something that makes you happy, write it down, stick it in the jar, and when you have a really crap day, come and open the jar and read it. And that's what I want these kids Sounds to like take home. great therapy to me. It's good Absolutely. therapy. It's, it's Are good you for familiar me with um, Sent Mihai and his, uh, his work on uh, happiness? No. Um, there's a great TED talk um, okay. from him and he talks about happiness as uh, being um, in the flow, like a writer. When you're in an activity where you lose track of time, and as a writer you would know that, yeah. uh, that's being in the flow. And he says that um, research shows that there's quite a large percentage of students who have been through school who have never experienced flow. That's and exciting. That's, I it's like that really, idea. It's really interesting, that psychological theory of happiness. See, I would call that living in the moment. But there's, oh. the, there's also um, oh, there's a very long word which I cannot remember. But um, it's mentioned in... Uh, you may be familiar with uh, Chris Hadfield, who's the astronaut that did the David Bowie cover oh, right. um, up on the yes. International Space Station, yes. but he's just written a book. Right. But all the astronauts that have actually been up to the space station or been in outer space or mm. travelled away from the Earth say that they experience this same thing, and it's being able to look back at the Earth but feel that connection with the planet. Yes. But that they also liken it to sort of living in the moment it's sort of a combination of that. There's a very long word that begins with S and ends with Zen or something like that. Uh, sorry, I should write it down and put it on a piece of paper in my wallet. I know that there's, there's mindful awareness they talk about, the psychologists yeah. talk about that. One of my writers is a psychologist and he talks about mindful awareness and, um, and that being sad is not something to be avoided 
there is a happiness movement where where you should just only think happy thoughts. But he said it's not like that. You have to actually process mm. the sadness and feel what you're going through. And I think your happiness journal works on the same sort of principle, yeah. isn't it? Well, it's the idea of yin and yang. You can't yes. have happy without sad. Because yes. if you were happy all the time, you wouldn't know what sad felt like and you'd have nothing to compare it to. Yes. You wouldn't know what happy meant. Same with sad, you know, unless you knew... You, unless you were uh, occasionally had a happy moment, you wouldn't know that being sad wasn't the place. Yeah, you know, that's right. It's a place you don't want to be. So you've got to have a bit of both, and that's yes. the beauty of life. Sounds wonderful. So Samantha Tidy, what's in the future for you? Are you working on something now? I am actually. I've just written uh, a children's book called Marley and the Happiness Jar. So I've just sent that off to all the publishers. I'm in that moment where you sit and wait. Find right. Um, but uh, that's my next project, and that's about getting young people to, to start their own happiness jar. Um, I'm also writing two young adult novels, so... Goodness um, me, you are busy. Yeah, <laughs> yes. But I do have two children under three, so you know, I, don't, right. I, try to, um, I try to write when I can, and then in between changing nappies and you know, <laughs> make the world a softer place to land, I manage to pen a, a word or two. Sounds like you've got some balance in your life. That's fantastic. All right, Samantha, just one more question. Um, some of our audience are emerging writers and you've now got a track record behind you. So what advice would you give to the young Samantha who may be, uh, in fact, um, just starting their career in writing? What, what can you tell them? I would say the... the the greatest piece of advice I could offer there would be write every day. Uh, if you're going to be a writer, it's a doing word. It's, it's a verb. You've got to actually write. But send your work off to as many competitions as you can. And there's a book called The Australian Writers' Marketplace, but all of the writers' centres around Australia will manage the information for each state and also international for all the, the writing competitions. And the reason you want to do that is when you go to send your work off to a publisher for the first time, if you've not published anything, that's totally fine. But if you've won a couple of competitions, you've got something on your writing CV and you've got something to celebrate. You're not just saying, hi, here's my story, and you've got no publishing history because most of the publishers would like to see that you've done something. So whether you can publish it in a magazine whether it be a poem or a short story. Um, you know, start small. If you want to write a novella, that's fine. Write something that's only thirty to 40,000 words. You know, consider self-publishing as well. I think that's a great way of showing that you can get a few runs on the board. And then you can enter a self-published book or, you know, something like that in a competition as well. So that's great advice. And finally, um, tell us about your award at the ACT Writers Centre. Yes, well, I think the thing about this novel, The Happiness Jar, I called it Always a Bride, Never a Bridesmaid, because I'd been nominated for, I think, four awards for this novel, and I'd got second and third uh, on a few things, and you get really frustrated when you just don't win the, the, the gong on something. So when, in December, when I won the, the ACT Writing and Publishing Award for Fiction, it was... It was like my book finally got to get married. <laughs> it's like so tired of being a bridesmaid. So um, I was very stoked and, and I think it's also a testament to the fact that um, 
writers' centres in whatever state you're in. Have contact with your writers' centre and enjoy the fact that they're going to support you because writing can be a very lonely profession. So. Thank you very, very, very much, Samantha. In fact, I'm stoked to have talked to you today and I think if people can run out and purchase the happiness jar... Available in all good bookshops, I should if, imagine. Um, it's, it is in a lot of bookstores and it's, um, it came out 18 months ago and it's selling still very, very well. So if That's the bookstore doesn't have it, just tell them it's a Peribo title, P-E-R-I-B-O, and they'll get it in for you within a week. Fantastic. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from www.aussiewriters.com.au. And if you are a reader or a writer, then hop on over to our website and subscribe.